high inflation, and economic uncertainty. As recession fears mount, analysts are digesting an array of data for signals to gauge the financial health of the American consumer. DVO1's In the Tranches of Structured Finance podcast dives into consumer data to explore macroeconomic trends, loan performance, and monetary policies. Here's your host, Vadim Verhoglad. Welcome, everyone, once again to DVO1's In the Tranches of Structured Finance podcast. I'm your perennial host, Vadim Verhoglad, head of research at DVO1, and this week, we're talking all things RMBS, but very specifically all things non-QM. The RMBS market, more specifically non-QM, is showing some signs of recovery and growth following the COVID-19 pandemic. Amid rising rates, we're also seeing the non-QM market exhibit some unique challenges and opportunities that are not as present or not as prevalent in the broad mortgage market. The surge in mortgage rates has led the origination channel to prioritize and increase its focus specifically on non-QM as a way of generating business, which creates a substantial tailwind for future growth and sector penetration. On the more concerning side, delinquencies are beginning to rise earnestly in the non-QM sector, which differs significantly from the broad mortgage market where delinquencies remain at record lows. Despite these delinquency increases, losses remain extremely muted, usually measured in single-digit basis points across securitizations. And this recent rise in delinquency doesn't really bode particularly concerning for the securitization structures or the sector credit performance as a whole, given the strong underwriting, low LTVs, and significant home price appreciation experienced by non-QM borrowers. And finally, specifically regarding securitization, non-QM bonds have faced spread pressures similar to other structured credit products over the past two years, some of which have significantly eased in recent months following the earlier 2023 banking crisis. These spread pressures have both created challenges for future securitizations, but also opportunities for new entrants and new types of participation in the non-QM market. To discuss these trends in depth, we really have the perfect guest who can speak to virtually every facet and every stage of the non-QM market. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Justin Mahoney, founder and senior portfolio manager at Shelter Growth Capital Partners. Shelter Growth is also a client at DVO1, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with Justin on previous panels and collaborating with him substantially over the past couple of years. Welcome, Justin, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, uh, Vadim. Uh, really happy to be here. Appreciate you guys inviting us and appreciate our partnership together. Uh, I'm Justin Mahoney. I've been in the mortgage space for over 20 years now, um, and I'm one of the co-founders of Shelter Growth and SG Capital. Um, and we'll give you a little background on ourselves, as I think it will inform some of our viewpoints. So we're active across the non-QM space. We own a wholesale originator by the name of Clear Edge Lending that's really focused on non-QM. Uh, we also have a separate mortgage conduit business with about 75 sellers across the country, again, really focused on non-agency and non-QM. And then on the money management side, we manage a residential credit fund and an insurance separately managed account. Um, in that side of the business, we're active in trading and investing in loans, issuing securitizations, and investing in securities. Thanks, Justin. So it's great because you have the perspective of both the issuance side, the sales side, and the buy side of the market. 
So I guess let's kick off since from both sides. Where does non-QM stand today? And where does yeah, it so, stand? Yeah. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about the loan market first and then we'll get into the securitization side. Yep. All right. So on, you know, on the loan side, you know, originations around about three and a half billion a month. Mm-hmm. Um, average coupon today is mm-hmm. north of eight and a half and getting into the high eights. Now, remember when I quote those numbers, that's kind of where loan locks and new production are coming mm-hmm. in. But I mean, you see that in securitization. It's a, it's a couple months away. Mm-hmm. Um, production mix has really remained pretty consistent um, even throughout this rate rise. So, you know, we're kind of averaging 725 plus FICO, low to mid 70s loan to value about a third uh, overall DSCR. And depending on the month, you know, that number can be 30 to 50% on the DSCR side. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one big change structurally in the market, and it directly affects the loan side and, and, and certainly will affect and does affect the securitization side as well. Um, and it's been, you know, several years in the making, but really accelerated in the last year has been the emergence of insurance portfolio buying. Um, and, you know, depending on the month, insurance portfolios are now probably taking half or more than that of the origination supply. Um, and, you know, and they come in, comes in a handful of different forms. There's, um, you know, some direct in-house teams and others have separately managed accounts with money managers like us and others. Um, and their appetite's also pretty diverse. And so there's, there's large buy programs that are basically buying vertical slices and there's some tighter credit box carves around that. And, when you talk about the insurance bid, this is obviously, I mean, insurance companies weren't really present in non-QM at, at the sector's onset. I believe, if I remember correctly, they've gotten in over the past few years, but obviously the 50% number is, is, is pretty substantial. What do you attribute this kind of high presence of the insurance mar- uh, companies to? Yeah, so look, number one. And it's been there forever, um, but it, or it's been there for a long time. But uh, you know, but it's really sort of taken shape um, or been recognized as you know, performing residential loans um, get phenomenal insurance company capital treatment. So regulatory capital requirements are are less than one percent for those. Um, and I think really the big change has also just been the aggregate rise in yields. And so now, you know, if you think about for a lot of you know non QMs early days, um, a the market, you know didn't have performance history behind it um, and be, you know, kind of aggregate loan yields um, weren't necessarily meeting insurance company bogeys. But ever since we've gotten, you know, above six handle on coupons, um, that's worked really well for them. They could be really competitive given their regulatory capital. And the other big part of this is, look, non-QM credit performance has been really strong. And so, you know, you can look at this and say, Hey, we've got an asset class that gets great capital treatment, has you know basically no losses, and has solid yields. And the other the other real factor, if you think about this, is you know it's hard to participate in the GSE market because mm-hmm. Annie Freddie and the TBA market set prices in that. Yeah. It's it's hard to compete uh, versus banks for jumbos, especially on the arm side. Mm-hmm. And so there's a place where people can go get fixed rate loans. Uh, that are still high credit quality, high yields, and be you know one of two price setters versus securitization here. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, was there anything else on the loan side before we got into a little bit more of the uh, kind of securitized dynamic? And I'd love to break the securitized dynamic uh, up from two fronts. One being, of course, the, the the sales side, the issuer side, and the challenges they're facing. And from the other, the the buying base side and and where kind of capital is sitting there and how they're thinking about the landscape. 
Yeah. And, and so look, and I think I think the two conversations flow in together because I, you know, I brought mm-hmm. that earlier point on insurance up because and and you you brought a good point, you know, pre, you know, pre-COVID, securitization was really the sole price setter in the market. And now mm-hmm. when it comes to acquiring loans, the securitization bid competes with the insurance bid. Um, and look, there's for a number of reasons we'll probably touch on later. There's plenty of room for both, mm-hmm. but but that's important when we think about you know from an from an issuer standpoint. Mm-hmm. The first is how am I going to acquire the loans and what's the execution versus what the competing bid is. Um, but you know, look, and I I think from structurally, I think the securitization market remains um, healthy, and I think the outlook is good. That doesn't mean that there's not volatility and challenges within that. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's call you know for some numbers. So let's call triple A's today one eighty five and triple B's three fifty, and you know mm-hmm. I'd, I'd make those kind of thirty and sixty mm-hmm. respectively off the tights of September. Mm-hmm. If we want to put some sort of yearly context into this. Um, you know, we probably got out into the 200s uh, in the spring, in the volatility in spring on triple A's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember we were buying some triple mm-hmm. B's in the, in the mid 400s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're we're certainly inside of wides, um, but we're off of, of, you know, what was a good September. Um, yeah. You know, and, and look, I think if we think about kind of where we're going to go for the rest of the year here, I think some of those prints in September um, brought a number of potential deals to the market, and you've got a condensed time frame. So mm-hmm. really, you've got you know a lot of people want to get up and down and priced between Labor Day and Thanksgiving before everything really shuts down. So you've got mm-hmm. kind of a combination of an increased supply calendar uh, and obviously kind of you know rocky macro background. So it's not surprising that we see some spread widening here. Um, but of course. you know, look, I, I think is you know in as we talk to loan origination clients, loan trading counterparts, securitization, um, issuance, and, and bond buyers, you know, the asset class definitely feels more structurally durable than it's been. Um, and, and you know, I think both originators and investors view it as a viable and, and really interesting asset class. When you say more more durable than it's been, are you really talking about kind of the coming off the struggles that the sector faced in 2022? Because, I mean, clearly it's Three point five billion a month is is good volumes, but it's obviously nothing compared to what you guys were doing in twenty one. So, is, is, are you saying mostly kind of like recovered from the, let's just say the hectic days of twenty two, or are we saying just fundamentally structured on it, even on a historical basis? Yeah, so I think the answer is a little bit of both. There, maybe I'll maybe I'll try to cover them. So, you know, one, I think for the production side knowing that there are two avenues for takeout so that being portfolio and you know and securitization i think is very good for participation on the origination side because one one thing to remember is you know if you go back kind of pre 2021 or kind of you know let's call it the the covid boom days and before that on the gse origination side there you know a lot of the mortgage production capacity wasn't really participating in non-QM. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it, it was having a great time in 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 the GSE side and didn't feel the need to. Um, and now I think it's shifted where number one, it has a need to, but number mm-hmm. two can look at the market, see the different execution channels and, and, and feel a lot more comfortable there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, look, I think 2022, I think you ended up with a really unique storm and as you mentioned because you had record production volume of you know late 21 and early 22 you had record production volume you know there you're doing kind of six to seven billion a month mm-hmm. all at kind of four coupon yeah that then needs to come to securitization market um 
when the market knows the new coupon is supposed to be 6%. And on the heels of that, the dominant buyers are money managers who are having record outflows. And so there you kind of had a perfect storm for a sector. Um, and so I think a lot of that is is certainly behind us. Um, and I think the different execution outlets, um, you know, both well for production continuing. That makes sense. Would, would you say at this point that we're the entire sector is kind of all the loans that were maybe let's just since current production is eight and a half lakh, would you say all the loans that are, let's say, sub six and a half have been already cleared off balance sheets like in securitization form or or otherwise? Or is, is anybody still dealing with kind of having to balance sheet some of the 21 or early 22 production in terms of different entities? Or is that all kind of moved past the sector now? That's really I think that's all move past anything in in we cans and so you know in, in one of our insurance portfolios we have an axe for that and we we try to buy um and i can say we've been able to source a lot less of that recently mm-hmm. there might be some opportunistic trading between what i'd call you know stronger hands that could hold it but in terms of any sort of for selling or needed for selling you know there, there really isn't any of that left that makes sense um would you say so you know when you when we're thinking about when we're thinking about kind of production today and 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 what what three and a half billion per month looks like going forward, it sounds like from the the business side, whether it's originators, whether it's the securitized market, the insurance bids, it seems like everything's kind of looking relatively relatively strong. Is the question about producing more than that to say maybe getting back to six or seven billion? Is that really mostly not feasible today because of a lack of borrower demand? Just the fact that people just don't want to or can't afford to take an eight and a half percent mortgage in non-QM? Is that kind of the biggest hurdle to future production or is there is there still any kind of sector level efficiency or sector level kind of drawing in new capital that that is in any way hindering kind of more production? Um, it's a great question. Uh, and I think there's a two-part answer uh, to that because I think mm-hmm. I think number one is, you know, look, I think it's top, it starts top down your point with, you know, Eight and a half more, eight and a half percent mortgage rates. You know, look, the the rate lock in effect here is is real. Like activity in the mortgage business is just way down, right? So, existing home sales are down over twenty percent on the year. They're down much more than that versus you know the peaks post COVID. Yep. When you think about the broader origination market, you know, twenty twenty one was four and a half trillion. Twenty twenty two was two was high twos. Twenty twenty three is going to be lucky to do half of twenty twenty two. Yeah. So. That obviously affects non-QM. Um, now, the interesting thing is, you know, non-QM, probably the lows we hit were in late 2022. And I think the market was mm-hmm. kind of sub $2 billion. Yep. There's a number of different factors there. But, you know, I think one thing that, that we do see kind of day to day, and it gets to your, you know, kind of market structure or efficiencies, et cetera, is, you know, there is just more focus from the people that literally produce mortgage loans, you know, originators and kind of the boots on the ground, mortgage loan officers, you know, you know, the majority of them had never done a non-QM loan. And now they're just forced to look for all options with, with GSE production being way off. And so, you know, in our conduit business, you know, I, I can think of a couple of fairly sizable, i.e. when you think about total volume, they're kind of multi-billion dollar a month originators mm-hmm. that came into non-QM this year that really weren't, you know, didn't really have much of a presence or a focus on it. And so I think at the margin, non-QM can have a pickup just because, you know, again, 
far less than 50% of the production staff was really focused on it, you know, mm-hmm. previously. Um, yeah. So I think there's some pickup there, but you can't really fight the bigger top down effects. So it's a bit, it's a bit of both, uh, you know, to your question. And and f- picking up on the borrower side of it, is this a question at this point of kind of, if I'm a homeowner, I just don't want to buy the home at an eight and a half percent mortgage, or is it a question of if I'm buying at an eight and a half percent mortgage, it's hard to imagine a loan that's getting done at that point. That isn't, close to 40, 41, 40, even 43 DTI. And then, you know, you have some questions about production in non-QM and saying, Hey, we're getting a lot of high DTI loans where maybe this, we don't want to just absorb all the supply. And there's a lot of borrowers that just fall out because even if they wanted to, they can't really afford it, you know, with, with non-QM underwriting uh, at eight and a half percent, they could at five and a half or six and a half, but at eight and a half, it's just kind of a non-starter given their financial situation. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, I think a, it's a bit of all of the, all of the above. And so I'll, I'll, I'll try to break that down into pieces. Yeah. So one, you know, look, you, you really haven't seen much guideline expansion in, in non-QM. And I think in general, you know, periods of price volatility mm-hmm. are not when you see, guideline expansion because i think people are just focused on you know how can i make the 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 right down you know the middle of the fairway loan yeah um you know look i think second loan investors and securitization investors are cautious of you know we're in a bit of a different we we are in a different macro environment than we were before and so i think in general if you started to see you know tales of higher dti really creeping up um you know i think that that would start to have a negative reception and and really we we have not seen that Mm -hmm. and then i think there's you know there's a couple of different factors as it relates to the borrower side. And, and one has to do with, you know, with the increase in, in home prices, our average loan size is $500,000. And, you know, the average LTV even on a purchase is, is in the low 70s, low to mid 70s. So, um, you know, there's certainly less borrowers with that amount of dollars to make on a down payment. And then to your last point, you know, there's less borrowers that are really able to qualify um, because of the fact that rates are where they are. So I think when you couple those facts with, with, with that, you know, the market is not, you know, actively, you know, kind of expanding on the guidelines. Um, you know, I think those those are the natural constraints. Do you think there's any when we talk about the guidelines? Obviously, out of these points, there's three that are unassailable. Rates are where they are. Borrower cash flow is where it is. But is there any question on on when thinking about kind of guideline expansion and taking the sector kind of up? Is there? Do you get the sense that there's still any any reticence and any people? still using my kind of favorite algorithm uh, favorite statement which is that for normal people t- 2008 was 15 years ago and in the mortgage markets it was last week do you get the sense that there's still people that that hear the word non-qm not obviously active market participants but future participants they hear non-qm and they think oh my god subprime 2008 never ever do you think there's any of that that still bottles up kind of guideline expansion when it comes to thinking about like taking non-QM higher up and t- and kind of being able to absorb more production, or is that kind of mostly been weighted out of market thinking? I mean, it should have been weighted out ten years ago, but obviously, uh, media headlines have done anyone no one any favors when it comes to describing the non-QM market. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think in large part, I mean, look, non-QM has expanded and brought on bigger buyer bases in part because of how strong the credit performance has been. Um, and, you know, I think all sides are, are hesitant to change anything to do with that. Um, and then, you know, look, I think the other dynamic that is real is, you know, it's not clear that there's 
a guideline lever, you know, look, we could, you know, we could make a lot more loans if we went back to a hundred LTV, you know, no docs and, and no due diligence, but, but no one is, is looking for that. But it, it's not clear that there's, you know, something that's kind of readily changeable that, that could be accepted by the market that would really scale. And so for that reason, I think there's just, there's just been less focus on it. Um, you know, I think buyers, you know, loan buyers and bond buyers are generally pushing against any sort of major changes um, in the guidelines. Um, and again, outside of, you know, you know, doing things that might jeopardize the overall quality of the market, there aren't, there aren't too many levers that I think can be pulled. It's interesting when, the way that, the, that you say that, because I'm, you know, when you think about typically securitization, certainly you're absolutely right. If you just did 180 LTV, no doc, 2007 style loans, I don't think there's appetite for that, but surely is there kind of a middle ground because everything that we see in performance, the loss rates are still in the single digit basis points or less. Um, I mean, it's certainly below any, any triggers in, in, in securitizations. Um, so is there kind of like a middle, is there almost like a middle ground where the sector could take a little bit more risk just because, I mean, the, the cumulative losses in this in non-QM across the board for the past eight years is probably in the single millions of dollars if or maybe tens of millions, but like it's basis points. Um, is there any kind of ability to say, okay, we don't want to go back to 100 LTV, but we can take a little bit more risk given that, you know, we've seen now non-QM space is almost seven years old and we've not seen any deals with any kind of material loss behavior even through kind of reasonably interesting cycles like like COVID? Look, I think it's a great question. I think the answer is there should be. Mm-hmm. However, it's not it's not particularly clear to me um, what the catalyst is for that. And so, you know, by so to, to delve further into that, yeah. I think when we're trading pools, whether it's selling or buying, you know, I think you know, the market clearly pays attention to things like percentage of L, you know, LTVs greater than 80, FICOs less than 700, kind of all, all the dimensions every, everyone would be aware yep. of. And so I think that gets called out, you know, right away. Um, it's generally the same in securitization. Uh, and so I think it's a bit of a question of, you know, kind of who wears the risk. And if you think about this from an issuer standpoint, you know, your you know, you're going to be launching, you know, you're going to be expanding those guidelines. It's probably going to take you, you know, several months at a minimum to aggregate the collateral and come to market. And if you happen to come to market where, you know, you've got a rocky macro backdrop, you're likely to suffer quite a bit, um, Mm -hmm. you know, on that transaction. So it's kind of, it's a bit of, you know, who's going to move first and who wears, you know, that ultimate market risk. And, you know, I think, I think as it stands right now, that would kind of be solely on the issuer and aggregator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that seems a little unlikely to me to happen. I think one of the things that could change is look, you know, portfolios, you know, one of the advantages they have is they tend to be buy and hold, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so their transactions are kind of, you know, set aside from market risk fairly quickly. Um, but they also tend to be more conservative in nature. So I'm not really sure you're going to see the leadership from that side. Would it take something like portfolio bids, either from an influx of capital, just kind of absorbing supply of, let's say, you know, if if LTV was, let's say, the, the lever that you didn't want to necessarily step back on, given kind of the overall level of home prices, maybe some people would be a little bit more comfortable taking FICO, you know, kind of down below 700. Would it have to be a situation where 
the buyer base was just so strong at 700 or above that, you know, some like some of the different hands would have kind of no choice but to take a little bit lower FICO or would it have to be kind of a commensurate statement and saying, hey, you know, 50, we've been underwriting almost no mortgages to low FICO individuals for better part of 15 years now. There's clearly likely a demand there. And if they have kind of ancillary factors, you know, if somebody had 600 FICO because they had a problem in COVID with a divorce, but they have a 30, 35% down payment and they've got a strong cash flow, it's a loan that's probably able to be underwritten, but historically hasn't been. And certainly there's been anecdotes of these kind of people all across the country. So is it a question of somebody's got to be the first person to do it? And is that person doing it going to do it because they either have taken a stance on saying this is just absolutely good yield? Or is it one of those things where the market just has to be able to take away all of the other supply to such a degree that some issue or some entity is not going to have a choice if they want to grow market share? Another good question. Look, I think, you know, I think I'll answer in a couple different ways here. One, I think the right way to do it would be issuers partnering with anchor bond investors and saying, you know, look, I think we could expand in this way. If we do that, we could bring you more supply. You know, will you buy that? Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think is the right way to do it. Um, You know, I think I do think one of the parts, though, which is, you know, which is interesting when you think about the backdrop and and kind of what non-QM is. And and I know, you know, lower FICO is just an example of of many different levers. But if you think about lower FICO for a second, you know, there's a lot of guidelines that will go, you know, down into 620 pre-COVID. You know, there was guidelines that went into the 500s. But given we're in a pretty large, you know, purchase market here. I also mm-hmm. think there's a real direct correlation between, you know, who has the amount of down payment to actually go mm-hmm. and purchase a house and has that FICO score. And so I, I think you also have just some kind of self-selection on the borrower side yep. of who's actually able to have the savings and the current income to, to um, you know, to to purchase the house. And then on the mm-hmm. rate side, you just see a lot less of a cash out you know, refi market, just given where you know yeah. a lot of people's first liens are versus where rates are today. So I, I think that that kind of dynamic is probably as constraining as, as anything on the, you know, on the, on the issuance or, or who owns the market risk, you know, along the way mm-hmm. it's, it, it's that it just isn't, it isn't clear that there's a, a very easy lever to pull that would significantly increase the volume and, and not materially increase the credit risk. That makes sense. Uh, p- piggybacking on that, because you mentioned the idea, the, the cash out idea. Uh, do you think that, I mean, I certainly don't imagine we're getting to ZERP anytime soon, but do you think if there is a material cut in rates in maybe the back half of 24 and 25, that there is a substantial pent up demand in cash out and kind of cash out, certainly not in rate term, but is there, do you get the sense there's a substantial pent up cash out demand that would create a significant kind of tailwind for growth maybe two years or so from now? Or do you get the sense that if rates came down, people would still be kind of just as cautious with their cash out activity as they had been for really since 2010? It's a good question. I, I would answer it maybe slightly differently. In mm-hmm. there's tremendous pent up demand within the mortgage origination community for yep. production, and so you know I think you would see you would see them aggressively moving on all angles, um, you know, for more production and more refinance volume, whether it's rate and term or you know or cash out or just more purchases being allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you would see 
you know, production come up um, regardless because of that. Um, and, and look, I think over 21 and 22, the sector transitioned to where it, it also got good at refining non-QM into non-QM. So, so mm-hmm. obviously that exists there. Um, so I think you'll see that. I think the question will be, uh, especially for the private markets here is, you know, if we are uh, experiencing a substantial rally in rates, what does that mean for credit spreads? Um, and how much wider are those? And, and what is that sort of net impact on on where non-QM specific rates will be? Um, but certainly, um, you know, look, the, the mortgage origination community by and large, it, you know, still has excess capacity and, and, and while that will come out over time, um, they will be all over um, any opportunities for, for increased production. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticking with the securitizations for for a moment, are there still, um, I, I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but are there still any kind of issues with the sector as kind of part of the sector's plumbing that maybe hold back, at least from the issue from the securitization side, their ability to be competitive? And the way I'm thinking about it is a few years ago, there was a question of standardizing rep and warranties where there was still maybe a few years ago, and maybe it's different today, but that was something that was the standardization of that had been kind of a concern. And then post COVID, the concern was, well, how do you report modifications and which borrowers are paying or not? Are there any kind of market dynamic specific issues that exist among the issuance market in order that kind of stifle securitizations from being more competitive today? You know, look on the, from the issuer's perspective, um, and and I'm not saying it's a it's a negative thing yeah. in the in the entirety. It's just the reality of it. It takes a lot longer to come to market post crisis, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. But mm-hmm. you know, I think that timeline of of you know of 15 G's and the process and how long it it, it ultimately takes you um, to get up and down you know, certainly increases the amount of time exposure you have to volatility, which has to factor into pricing. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, look, I think definitionally, if that was to change, you'd have to do something, you know, we'd be doing less than we're doing today. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that there's appetite for that. Um, But, you know, in terms of sort of securitization, and, and as we think about, you know, when, when we're holding loans and evaluating exits and things, um, and, and I'm sure this goes for sort of all loan holders, you know, the fact you could, you know, it's much easier to do a trade to a portfolio that's going to be a buy and hold from a standpoint of what that process is than, than to do a securitization. Obviously, there's a number of, of, of really good reasons um, for people to securitize loans. But I, I think that, um, you know, that is one impediment. You know, I'm not sure that it will change or that or that I think it should. But I, th- I think that's, you know, that's something, you know, in in as far as the pieces you mentioned around kind of the standardization um, of reps and warrants, modification reporting, I think things like that we, we often hear, and I, I agree that they are challenges, but it's not clear to me that there's, you know, a lot of money that's sitting on the sidelines that's waiting for that to change so that it's going to come into the bond market and, and bring a materially different picture. So I think those are, you know, those are, you know, perhaps right, you know, complaints that, that people have about the market, but I, I'm not I'm not sure that you know changing either of those brings a vastly different supply demand dynamic. So I've got two questions on the back of that. I guess I'll start with the with, with the first part of it is when you mentioned that there isn't kind of appetite to change the 15G process and the kind of length to time to securitization. I'll ask maybe the same question that I asked about the middle ground 
where I think certainly no one wants to go back to 2007, but is there a middle ground between 2007 and securitizing loans at, you know, two weeks out and, you know, today, which is securitizing loans at kind of six or seven months out? Um, is there kind of a middle ground where, given that the sector, um, the, the sector continues to be, you know, very strong on a credit performance basis, is there a, de- like, kind of a demand for creating a little bit more um, flexibility on on that front in terms of kind of the idea of the middle ground? You know, I, I'd love to see it. And it, it certainly sounds sensible when you, when you say it like that. Um, you know, it's not something that, that I've really heard about being broached a lot. Hmm. Um, you know, again, I think it would probably take, um, you know, probably because I, I, I think the industry has a, you know, oftentimes will form consortiums and think about things for, for quite a long time. I think if you got a handful of issuers together and a handful of, of, of really large, you know, kind of anchor senior buyers, um, maybe things could come together quicker on that front. Um, but I, you know, it's not something that I see, you know, kind of really happening. And look, it, the reality is everyone's busy in the market. And so when things are working from an issuance standpoint, um, you know, there's not, a lot of appetite for change. I think people are just trying to get their risk up and down and priced. And on the bond side, people are trying to put money to work. And then, you know, when things are rocky or things are breaking, understandably, it's kind of harder to find sponsorship for change in, in those timeframes. So I, I think you have this kind of natural dynamic where um, when when things are humming along, there's people less focused on, okay, how do, how do we go and change things? Um, and then when, uh, when they're not, um, you know, everybody's kind of hunkered down. That makes sense. And that kind of leads into the second part of my question. And I'll, I'll actually rephrase it based on your answer is, so you mentioned kind of the buyer demand that there's no idea of like there's extra cash on on the sidelines. Would you say, I mean, because you and I were both in the mortgage markets uh, prior to 2008, some of the buyer demand base that existed um, before 2008, is that capital able to be pulled back into the market in any way. And the way that I'm thinking about it is not really comparing the 21 environment, which obviously, as we mentioned, six to seven billion originations is huge. It was still not even close to the size of the securitized markets in, let's say, 2000 or 2001, right? Which for the most part was relatively cleaner collateral, right? You didn't see the same kind of 100 LTV, no doc loans at that point. Um, and there's certainly, I would say, probably a little bit of a different buyer, larger buyer base. Is some of that kind of capital that just permanently disappeared because of the GFC? Is some of that capital just something that the issuer, the market hasn't come back to? Or is any of that in some way kind of waiting for some level of clarity or some market size to be able to say, hey, you know what, this is kind of safe again, I could potentially reenter? So there's a, there's a couple of different things there, and and I think you're I think there's a supply component and there's a mm-hmm. demand component. So if we yeah. think about you know going back there, so maybe I'll touch on the demand first. Sure. Um, one other thing I think you know our 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 underwriting partners on um, you know on the broker dealer side have done a good job of uh, especially this year is kind of getting back out into Europe and getting some European participation. And so, you know, you've seen more deals be UK risk retention eligible and, and EU. And so, you know, I think that was a part of the sector that was, um, 
you know, clearly absent. Um, you know, Asia participated a lot um, pre-financial mm-hmm. uh, crisis. There's yep. still not much out of, out of there. Um, and I think, look, I think there's been two factors. One, you know, there's just there's data and the performance data, as we've been mentioning, has been good. So that's really helpful. Yep. Um, you know, and then there's been consistent issuance. So I think that's allowed um, that's allowed you know them to sort of uh, focus and re-enter, and so I expect that that um, you know that will only continue to grow. So I think that's been um, you know something that's been pretty helpful to the market. And I think mm-hmm. um, there's certainly been a couple of transactions this year where uh, they've been really supportive and 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 helped to drive that. So I think that's um, I think that's a big part of it. And then you know, look, I think the supply side is another um, you know is another big angle, and so. You know, really, you've got kind of three levers there, right? You've got interest rates, the GSE footprint, and guidelines. Mm-hmm. And you know, look, I think we've covered kind of rates and guidelines. Yeah. On the GSE side, you know, look, they're you know, with loan limits, they're they're more active. You know, the non-agency market was the majority of the market. Um, you know, going back pre-financial crisis and yep. in that kind of early two thousands run, and it's obviously nowhere close to that now. Yeah. Um, you know, look, there's. When it comes to the GSEs, I, I wouldn't count on anything, and I think it's also it's also you know worth you know pointing out that look the the mortgage production side, you know if you think about your big mortgage originators, they lobby pretty heavy for the GSEs to increase their footprint, not decrease it, because that's an easier business for them. Yes. Um, so that, that that's that's certainly one side that's out there. But yeah. look, if the GSEs reduce loan limits and they kind of retrench towards focusing on you know owner oc, uh, first time home buyer, et cetera, uh, yeah. things like that could be a real game changer on the supply side. But it's hard to bet on any any real change coming from that side. That makes sense. So it's kind of it's a bit nuanced, and it doesn't seem like the market can really get back to even a two thousand level without kind of a sea change from the GSC and kind of a rethink of maybe unclogging again some of the. Not not so much unclogging, but maybe kind of facilitating that knowledge base and people understanding how quality the market is today from a credit performance perspective, which kind of makes sense. I'm curious. So macro level, I know you said there isn't much in the way of guidelines, but are there any micro changes in non-QM over the past maybe 18 months, like maybe a different doc type purchase, maybe a slight shift in like kind of guidelines or any anything that, that the sector is kind of taking it upon itself to really target over the, over that time period. Not, not really. Um, and I know you're kind of asking a bit at the margins. Look, I, I still think we still tend to push that, you know, the real, when, when you're on the loan production side, you spend 90% of your time talking about 5% of productions, you know, that people yeah. are, are thinking about and dream up and all, all of it, you know, all of it kind of really happens down the middle. And so, yeah. I think a huge when I, when we think about growth and and we think about how we try to grow volume on our side, a lot of it is just tapping into that currently or previously untapped um, mortgage, you know, just kind of the mortgage production engine that hasn't focused on it. So just training people on what is non QM, how is this different than GSE paper? How you know how can we help you to originate? And so mm-hmm. I think that's where the majority of um, of the growth will come from. You know, look, I think I think if anything at the margin you've probably seen reductions um and, and that's been whether it's been price or outright guidelines and what people are doing at kind of the the higher ltvs maybe some of the lower dscrs mm-hmm. um or, or lower fico so I, I think if anything you know it's probably been a slight retraction but it's it's probably i'd say kind of fairly neutral right now 
And when you're talking about kind of getting the mortgage universe more accustomed to non-QM, does that help in terms of, is there kind of a, like a learning curve to, let's say, bring down the timelines of originating a non-QM loan? Because, you know, obviously you don't have, you know, you don't have desktop underwriter, you don't have day one certainty, you don't have all the things that people would rely on to maybe make a more affordable, from the originator side, make it a more affordable GSC loan. Is it just a matter of learning and teaching them that some of the same systems work so that it's not as time-consuming and expensive for them to originate a non-QM loan? Is that kind of something that that is that is happening over time, or is it just a fundamentally different way that non-QM has to be originated in terms of in order to finalize the loan? That's a great question. Um, so, in in to some degree, I think we've been dealing with this since we started in the non-QM market, but it but it still persists today. And, and look, I think I think you have to remember that a lot of this is done by an individual loan officer. In, yeah. in what is their confidence in the product. And so if you think about it, you know, what what does everybody want today? They hope they have realtor relationships because we're in a purchase business right now. Yep. And so if, you know, if 99 out of 100 loans that they've done over the past, you know, over the past uh, several years have been GSE and they have very good confidence in that, it, they're understandably nervous when it's a new product that, that they haven't had. And so yep. the big thing that we see in the market is it's hard to get production people to do their first loan. Mm-hmm. It, you know, kind of go from zero to two loans. Yep. It's a lot easier to take them from two to 10 loans, right? On there. And so that's where a lot of, you know, I think, I think in, in look, and it made sense in, in boom times um, when, uh, you know, when GSC refis are, are, yeah. are incredibly plentiful. I think that, um, you know, so it's kind of, I think, as opposed to maybe, you know, different guideline tweaks or process tweaks, um, you know, I think, um I think just education um, it has been, you know, has been kind of the, the main focus. There's been, you know, several tries at, at automated underwriting engines. Um, you know, I think those have, have generally not yet been successful um, mm-hmm. in the market. You know, us and several others will allow sort of combinations of utilizing uh, the Fannie and Freddie AUS, um, but mm-hmm. those are still very small parts of, of the market today. And, so, and is that, Kind of when can you if you can give us a little inside baseball how how do you how have you seen the growth and kind of like that idea of mortgage brokers going from like the zero loan to two how has that kind of changed over the last couple of years I imagine it's 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 growing substantially but uh, is there any kind of like kind of concept as to how how we can think about it or or maybe from a perspective of like what percentage roughly of kind of mortgage you know underwriters out there are now capable like of doing a non-QM loan and they know how to actually do it. I mean, look, I think, I think the number one driver here is, you know, is, is need. Um, and so in terms of, in terms of where people are focused, you know, when they can't make the loans on the production yeah. side where they can't make the loans um, that they used to make, um, you know, they, they will turn and they will focus on, um, you know, on, on, uh, on this product. And so I think there's some forced learning, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do think the, you know, the aggregation community that looks like us, you know, does heavily invest in training. And so whether that's helping out, you know, that's really a combination of, I think, helping out the underwriting and the credit staff, as well as helping out the production people, um, you know, and so the the training on the underwriting credit staff is really nuts and bolts of how do you underwrite these loans? What are, what are some things to look out for? You know, when should you call us and ask us the questions? And then, you know, on the, on the production side, it's look, who are these borrowers? 
um, you know, giving them a profile of it, making sure they understand what our products are, et cetera. Um, and so I think there's been, you know, there's quite a bit of outreach, um, again, from the aggregation community like that. How does that translate over time? And, and in terms of, you know, roughly, do you have a sense of right now, like how much kind of time and resources it costs them to make a non-QM loan right now, just the actual production of making a loan versus a GSC loan. And how do you, how would you imagine, like, what would it take for that gap to like, is that gap, is there a lot of low hanging fruit to get that gap to be shrunk or is there still kind of, um, or are you kind of bumping up against the limits of how much, you know, how much that, that gap can shrink so that, you know, the economics for not them looks that look that much better. Look, I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of different levers in that because it also mm-hmm. depends on, you know, what is the organization? And if you think about kind of the big public companies of, you know, UWM and, and Rocket Mortgage, yeah. you know, one of the things they did incredibly well was shortening it, shortening the time and the cost to produce a GSE refi. You know, they, they mm-hmm. built incredible businesses around that. So, you yep. know, they're hard to compare versus, you know, someone that does a hundred million dollars, you know, a month. And, and, you know, at its core, I think non-QM is, you know, more of a manual underwrite. But even, even if you take it, it let me say it, it is a manual underwrite. And I think, I think yeah. it, it will be, um, you know, for, for quite some time, even though people do utilize technology, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for things like bank statements and obviously property valuations, um, et cetera. Yeah. What, what I think has changed and I think could be good for the dynamic is, you know, at, at now at significantly more of the mortgage production universe, including at some of those bigger companies that I mentioned, there are, you know, underwriting divisions that are doing this product right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there weren't necessarily beforehand. And so, you know, I think you've gotten to the place where the majority of, of the market, you know, at least has, you know, at least has people that are capable of underwriting the product, whereas that necessarily didn't exist, uh, you know, a handful of years ago. And so I do think if you get to the place where, you know, where the rate picture changes or some of these other levers that we've talked about move, um, you know, I think that you'll be in a place where you could see a, a pretty substantial volume pickup just based off of kind of that that structural build that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, I, I know earlier we asked about any material changes. Has twenty twenty three has certainly not been an easy year. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, has there any has there been any kind of fallout in the sector other than you know spread moves on a fundamental basis, either from kind of the bank failures in early 23 or some of the questions about the feds, you know, or the risk weight adjustments that have been talked about with Basel three is any of that showing up in the sector yet? And how do you anticipate that any of these kind of exogenous non rate, non kind of like macro factors could have on the industry going forward? Do you view them as positive, negative, kind of mostly non-starters? How do you kind of view that landscape? Yeah. So look, I think, I think by and large banks weren't huge buyers of non-QM loans or bonds. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. there isn't, there isn't a ton there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the questions we get a lot and obviously we deal with is what's warehouse capacity. Yeah. And, and that affects kind of a lot of levels because you've got, you got that at the originator and then you've got that at the aggregator pre-securitization. Mm-hmm. Um, and now look, I think a couple of Pretty active warehousers, you know, are, are no longer in business um, and, and the banks are no longer in business. Um, but by and large, capacity remains um, pretty stable. And so what I think you saw there is, um, 
there were a handful of banks that survived and, and they're more on the regional side where the business wasn't core to them and they exited it. Mm-hmm. But for those that remain, and, I, and I'd say they're, they're fairly plentiful across um, the regional dealer base. And then yep. I think we've seen we've seen the Wall Street dealer base become step into the space in, in a bigger way this year um, where lending is core. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually probably at the margin, maybe a little more aggressive in mm. in looking for balances. And a big part of that is because their agency balances are just way down. Right. Yep. And so they're looking to fill. What we have seen is, I think, just given the mortgage origination environment, what earnings look like there and and the macro backdrop, Mm -hmm. I think some of the smaller originators, and again, you know, some of these are, you know, if we're talking on the the much smaller side, uh, they're they're having some more trouble getting banked um, and and that may continue. But I think for larger originators and aggregators, um, there's been plenty of financing capacity, you know, at least on our end, we've re-upped, we've added, we've added, you know, new participants there. Um, and, and it seems like from, you know, several others that sit in my seat, it's been, it's been the same. So mm-hmm. um, I think that financing um, remains strong, but, you know, that's an area that could evolve over the next, you know, year or so uh, as, a re- as a result of a lot of what's happened. So it sounds like the, the sector is kind of on firm footing, footing on most areas. So, you know, without obviously having to put a macro picture on with with in terms of rates, because quite frankly, nobody really knows all that well. Um, what do you see 2024 looking like for the sector? And what do you I'll ask you this in two parts. First, what do you think 2024 will look like? And second, what do you hope 25 and 26 look like for this sector? What's your kind of best view of like, how the sector can evolve and what could it grow to and what would it take for the sector to get there? That's a great question. Um, you know, so look, yeah, in 2024, I think our baseline expectation is, you know, I think we're, we're going to have kind of more of the same and, and I don't think anything revolutionary. Um, you know, I think we've bet on at least continued volatility, um, you know, if, if not more. And I think to the points we made earlier, you know, you don't generally have, you know, sort of great leaps in, in guideline changes w- when that happens. Um, on the structural side, you're going to have more insurance money in the sector, you know, not less. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think uh, that has a number of different dynamics depending on on where you play. Um, I think, you know, what that means for, for the bond market is, you know, issuance as a percentage of origination um, will likely decline. You know, that, that might be good for spreads, or at least in theory, it, it should be good for spreads. Yep. I think one of the big things, you know, and again, I think it's all related, but, you know, do you start to have, um, you know, more uh, fixed income manager inflows, um, which could create more demand um, and maybe tighten up pricing? Um, and so I think I think that's um, something that could happen. And then, you know, in terms of changing that balance, and, and, and they're correlated, but you know, look, if, if you had a major rally in rates, the sector may just look less interesting to insurance companies on an absolute yield basis and go yep. back to being, you know, kind of solely a securitization. And so that that really could kind of shift the dynamic um, of of where, um, you know, of where things go. Mm-hmm. So I think those are, you know, those are um that's kind of the outlook for, for 2024. And then you ask, and it's a great question, you know, of, of 25 and 26, 
you know, non-QM had kind of always hovered around sort of low single digits of of aggregate production in yep. in the mortgage market. And, you know, I, I think most of us and we're, look, we're we're long it, so we're biased, um, yes. but thought there's, you know, there's no reason why you know it shouldn't be. It's not going to be 40 percent of the mortgage market, but, you know, could it be, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the mortgage market? Um, and I think we're optimistic you know, that we could get there. I think a big part of, you know, some of the structural things I've mentioned of just, there's more, there's more people doing it today um, than, than ever before. So I think that that capacity is, is much greater um, than it's been previously. And so if you have any levers we've mentioned where, you know, you, you're in a different rate environment, um, you know, the GSEs are doing something different or the market can agree on some sensible but wider guidelines, um, I, I think you could see that production um, really start to gain as a percentage of the mortgage market, um, which would be great for all involved. And then, you know, look on the bond side, I, I think it's probably a continued theme. And I think you asked a great question on, you know, pockets of money that are that are not participating. You know, as you start to, you know, it's one of those success begets success things. So if you start to get to, you know, 10, 20% of, you know, what's maybe a, a hopefully a, a few trillion dollars of, of annual origination, you know, that starts to become sizable and starts to pull in the geographies that used to be present um, yeah. in, in, you know, in the sector that, that either are not or are less. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that would bode well for the demand side. Um, and then, you know, look, I think there are, um, you know, there's a number of very large money managers that we all know that are very active in the space, um, yep. but there are some that are less. And so if you, if you get to just being a significant, a more significant portion of the mortgage market, you know, I think it becomes something that people kind of have to participate in. So I think you have more demand on that side. Do you think in the next five years, you'd ever see a conforming loan that went into a non-QM securitization because the funding was just that much better than getting a GSE guarantee? Even one loan. That's a great question. Well, you know what? Um, You look from time to time. I think uh, you know you 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 may see some of those sneak in on the on the investor side. I'm not saying that they necessarily should, but uh, but uh, from time to time you might. Um, You know, look. I think it's I think it's hard to imagine that they don't go kind of the what what I call the more prime jumbo route. Mm-hmm. Whether either they're you know getting mixed with prime jumbo or the you know I think it's kind of established in in the more shifting infrastructure. So it's yeah it depends on how you it depends on how you think about that. Again, you know non QM tends to tends to or does price more off the front end. So if we get into the place where the front end is a lot lower, um, mm-hmm. there could be that possibility of just if you if the curve sort of yeah. reshifts its shape and is uh, and is upward sloping and 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 uh, short term rates are are uh, really low. You know could that happen? Potentially, and I'll I'll, I'll leave you. Uh, I'll let you go with one last question. Um, when we think about the sector, we obviously have a preponderance of kind of data and and availability of people to understand the credit risk. But what are are there any other data points that investors are using right now to think about risk in a different way? I mean, obviously, credit risk hasn't really been that much of a concern because, as we've talked about, performance has been great. But is there? Um, is there a different way that they're thinking about risk, whether it's, you know, a little bit more narrow tuned geographic footprint or thinking about data in an, in a different way that they're using to understand and get more comfortable with the sector? And if if there isn't one, what would you think would be something that people should be 
either looking at it in a, in a different way or looking to confirm the view that, hey, this, the strength in the underwriting continues and we're still not seeing any fundamental deterioration in, in credit standards and non-QM, which ultimately, as you mentioned, kind of success feeds success. The more people that realize how good performance is in non-QM, the more they should be excited about participating in the space, especially given the fact that in other parts of ABS, the performance is, let's say, less than sanguine. Yeah, so look, um, and I'll give a shout out to to you all at, at DV01 because I think you guys have done great work and published great research, um, especially around, uh, you know, geographies. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, I think you're going to see more focus on that. And so, and, and look, while well, I think, you know, housing certainly outperformed what, you know, people's expectations were going into the year, you know, I think, I think most market participants think, look, you, you might not see wholesale declines or trouble in terms of their kind of base case forecast, but, but regional dispersion, um, mm-hmm. you know, is, is likely to be more of a factor. And so I think you guys have done great work there. And so I think there's, there's a lot more tools that are available around that. I would expect that to continue. Um, and then it's a bit more on the front lines, um, but you know, I think there's the va- the property valuation tools are getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that has been helpful. And some of that is is both a credit risk and a, and a time to market standpoint. You know, there's there's tools that are using satellite imagery for property condition. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of rich data sets out there. So I think I think all those tools continue um, to advance. Um, so I think you'll you'll start to see more and more there. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think. Um, you know, and, and you guys have done some good work around this as well, too, uh, you know, digging into rents and rental patterns, just given, you know, I think I think the the rise of, of DSCR and thinking about those cash flows as opposed to the borrower backing it um, is certainly something new post post financial crisis. So I think those will will continue to evolve. Um, but you guys are certainly one of the leaders in there. That's wonderful to hear. Justin, before we let you go, is there anything else that we missed that we should have, uh, that you think we missed that we should have kind of brought up in this discussion? No, I had a great time and, uh, and happy to, you know, we'd be happy to do it again and, uh, and really enjoy working with you guys. Absolutely. Justin, thank you so much for your time and everyone. Thank you for listening to the In the Tranches podcast and have a great day. Thank you for listening to DVO1's In the Tranches of Structured Finance podcast. Stay up to date on the latest trends by subscribing to our podcast and our market research. If you have any questions about this episode or want to learn how DVO1 data can help you understand what's going on in the market, contact us at sales at dv01.co. You can also learn more about DVO1 products and market research by visiting our website at www.dv01.co.